This episode is brought to you by Pepsi Wild Cherry. Pepsi Wild Cherry is bursting with delicious cherry flavor and a sweet, crisp taste that gives you more to go wild for. Getting wild may look different these days, but whether it's opting for a solo Friday binge watch or a big night out, everyone can indulge in their wild side with Pepsi Wild Cherry, also available in Zero Sugar. So grab a Pepsi Wild Cherry and get wild. Sandy Alcantara on the bump. He has been the ace of the staff. He has been the horse of the rotation, and he's been the best pitcher in the National League this year. Looking sharp as Sandy has his first strikeout. That one at 100. Sandy gets the strikeout as Goldschmidt swings and misses. Swing and a miss. That one at 98 miles an hour. A 1-2-3 for call strike three. A little room on that outside corner against Trout, but Sandy's got two Ks. And he got the call. And that's a called strike three. Three and two to Marsh. And another strikeout for Alcantara. Back-to-back K's and four total. Two strikes. Called strike three. Strikes out the side. He's got Nasty. five K's the first time through the order. One, two pitch. Swing and a miss for strike three. One, oh, one. Welcome back to the MLB.com Ballpark Dimensions podcast. My name is Mike Petriello. I'm a writer and researcher for MLB.com, joined by Matt Myers, MLB.com national content editor. Today is Friday, July 8th, 2022. We have a whole bunch of things to talk about. We're going to talk about Sandy Alcantara, pitching king of Miami. We're going to talk about Trey Mancini's home run problem. What is behind or not behind Trey Turner playing better on defense? Uh, The fascinating thing about Miguel Cabrera that made all of Tiger's Twitter very mad at me and we're going to end with a couple of guys you should talk about more. Uh, very quickly before we begin, I want to remind you that if you listened to our last show and didn't hear Matt and myself, you heard Sarah Langs and Mandy Bell. Uh, as a reminder, they are doing a weekly show under the Ballpark Dimensions name. They will do a show early in the week. Matt and I will do one later in the week. Really enjoyed their first one from a couple days ago, so make sure you check that out. And I I briefly wanted to mention two pitchers we're not going to talk about today, but just because they've been pitching so well, it would be, I think, obnoxious to not even say their names. Spencer Strider, over his last three starts, has 30 strikeouts and one earned run. Shohei Otani, over his last five starts, has allowed one earned run. I wouldn't think Shohei Otani could keep doing cooler things, and yet he does. And also, the Angels aren't very good. Uh, Matt and I and a bunch of our coworkers went to the Mets-Marlins game last night. And it was super fun, even though it was a total blowout. And the only disappointment was that the Marlins did not pitch Sandy Alcantara, who is the new pitching king of baseball. And I think people enjoy him not just because like he throws hard and he's awesome, but because he's a throwback. He, throws t- he leads the league in innings, the majors in innings. He's got 11 straight starts of seven innings or more. No one's done that in eight years. And I think, Matt, that leads us to an interesting conversation. Is he the best pitcher in baseball now? Should he start the NL All-Star game? How much are we excited about a guy who pitches like, I don't know, it's still 1984? I'm pretty excited about him um, because, you know, there's sort of that old like throwback element to him. But I think it's I think it's it's more than that. I think that um, teams are so reliant on their bullpens and sort of so much of the modern managerial game is... How am I going to have my relievers rested? Who do I have available? Who's not available? Like, how can I sort of figure out these next few games when I don't have an off day, knowing that I got to get so many X many innings out of my relievers? And having a starting pitcher who consistently goes seventh inning or later with high quality innings is extremely valuable. And I think it's actually kind of 
underrated. Unfortunately, because like the Marlins aren't really a true contender, they, I'm not sure they fully benefit from some of this stuff. Where some other contenders, teams that are really like you know in the mix for playoff spots, would. But I think that like um, I think that that what, what Alcantara gives them is is unique. And like it's you know you wrote a piece about this, um, and you can go into it a little bit. And I have a couple of numbers as well that I think really speak to speak to his long, his uh, durability. Interesting because he is efficient. You know he throws a hundred miles an hour, and he'll show up on the pitching ninja gifts with like these ridiculous you know sinkers and everything. But he doesn't actually miss that many bats. I mean, seven point eight strikeouts per nine is is fine. It's like average ish. Uh, but he has the most outs. Or he's tied for the most outs on a zero zero count or a one zero or an zero one. Like the first you know two ish pitches of of a plate appearance but you know this was your idea and i kind of looked into it and i thought it was interesting like how do you put a guy like this in context with the old-timey pitchers who started every fourth day and completed 35 games a year and threw 330 innings like there is no scenario where he is allowed to do that like it is not within his control that anyone's ever going to let him do that so I thought an interesting way to do it would be just to compare the gap between the pitcher with the most innings and the pitcher with the second most innings. So right now, uh, Sandy's got 123 and a third. Aaron Nola is second with 111. And if you go back to 1947, the beginning of integrated baseball, since we're only halfway through, it's kind of hard just to look at like the raw difference in innings. But I looked at you know the, the percentage. So you can say right now, Nola has thrown 90% of Alcantara's innings. And if you go back through 1947 it's like tops what do we have here seven i mean we're not going to get to let's say bob lemon throwing only 83 percent of robin roberts's 346 <laughs> innings like that's not how baseball works but if they keep up the exact pace they're on which is unlikely but possible this would be the fourth uh like largest innings gap in the 70 something years and even if they just go with the projections which are you know the projected rest of season numbers from zips which are a little more conservative it would still be basically exactly what it is now so injuries could happen obviously a million things could happen this this really does stand out in a way we have not seen in quite some time and and I'd like to I'd like to make another point about this when it comes to Alcantara is it like he did this last year too this isn't just like this this isn't just a this year thing, right? He was extremely extremely durable last year. He was fourth in the league in innings last year with two hundred and five. Over the last two years, right? Over the last two seasons, going back to the start of twenty twenty one, he leads majors in the majors in innings by like a lot. He has three hundred and twenty nine innings pitched, which is twenty six more than any other pitcher. And he and Adam Wainwright and Zach Wheeler are the only pitchers over three hundred innings over the last two seasons, right? The only pitcher with the only qualifying pitcher with a um, ERA lower is Corbin Burns, and, and Alcantara has thrown 56 more innings than Burns has over the last two seasons. And one more stat on, on that, you mentioned the starts of seven innings or more. Well, what about starts of eight innings or more, right? Over the last two years, Alcantara has 15 starts of eight innings or more. No one else has more than seven. So, like, this, like, like he's, he's, a, he's a legit outlier in terms of the quality of, like, durability and um, quality. I am I am just pleased for Miami's sake that he has worked out so well because if you go back to their big teardown after 2017, uh, the Yelich deal looks like a disaster. Like none of those four players are even like average major leaguers. The Realmuto trade, I mean, Sixto Sanchez is talented, but he's barely pitched in two years. The yeah. Stanton trade was just about not having the contract. Like those three trades are all depending on how you feel about moving the money disasters. Uh, but when they traded Marcelo Zuna, they got. 
Zach Gallen, who turned into Jazz Chisholm, and they got Sandy Alcantara, and I didn't realize till right this second, they also got Daniel Castano, who you and I watched get lit up by the Mets last night. So at least one of these has worked out, I guess. <laughs> so so I guess there's two questions we want to discuss here, right? Which is, you know, I guess there's the NL All-Star Game starter, which is less interesting to me, and then there's a question of, like, who's the best pitcher in baseball right now, right? We have, like, there's a little bit of a changing of the guard with... Some of the, the the older guys kind of aging out a little bit. Degrom's been hurt, so I don't think you put in this conversation. And like, I think Alcantara is in the after. As I said, now that he's done this for basically two years, I think he's in this conversation. And I think there's like a compelling case that he's the guy. Well, I think there's no question he's in the conversation. He throws a lot of innings, and they're effective innings. I'm I'm taking a little bit of the under on the well. He's definitely the guy that I have seen some people say because he throws the most innings. Like. Innings matter, even though that starting pitchers don't go as deeply as they used to. Like innings, if you just want to do a quick and dirty look at wins above replacement, well, that rewards bulk. It rewards bulk and effectiveness. You know, so it's not like we're totally tossing innings out the window. Like they absolutely matter. I think if you look at the who, like who are the names on the list? Like to me, Corbin Burns is the first name that stands out, right? I think Zach Wheeler is super underrated in a lot of ways. I think he gets lost in the conversation a lot. He should be in the mix. I think Aaron Nola is probably like that as well. And then it's like. Well, Verlander and Scherzer and DeGrom are, like, a little more of the older guys, but they haven't always been available. Like, Verlander didn't pitch at all last year. DeGrom has barely pitched. Scherzer's missed time already this year. Like, I'm tempted to push them down just, like, a little bit. Am I ready to say Shane McClanahan yet? Like, no, but soon. I mean, you got Garrett Cole's got to be there, Gosman and Robbie Ray. I think it comes down to me, like, a top three would be Burns, Wheeler, and Alcantara. I'm not sure that's the order, but I, th- I think that's the top three for me, like, right this moment. It's interesting to put, you know, Wheeler in that mix. I guess, you know, another name that comes to mind who I think is sort of in that mold of the Wheeler Nola mold, who's a, 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 cut, above, a cut below, but is, I think, entering the conversation is Joe Musgrove, um, yeah. who sort of has a similar type of, like, extreme, you know, we talked about him, I think he has, like, all but one of his starts this year has been a quality start. Like, there's a, it's a similar kind of profile of, like, durability, like, High quality durability, but yeah, maybe not the the dominance you get of Burns at his peak. And I think that like, you know, the best version of Burns right now is probably the best pitcher. So it's like it's one of those. There's also the separate conversation, right? Which is like one game to win. Who do you pick, and who do you want to get you over the course of a 162 game season? Because I do think, and I kind of alluded to this before, I think what War doesn't War does not account for this how it saves your bullpen, how it makes it easier for a manager to keep mediocre relievers out of high leverage innings. And that that's the thing that I think that like is lo- where I think that like the innings pitched gives an extra value that like war doesn't fully capture. Yeah, I'll, I'll give you that. I think I, I think I lean burns just because he is absolutely dominant in a way, you know, he strikes out what, like 12 per nine and Alcantara strikes out seven per nine. And it's not just about strikeouts, like totally, but I lean towards that a little bit. And it's funny because last year, the conversation in the NL side was, well, Burns didn't throw as many innings. And I was surprised when I looked this up the other day, he actually has thrown the second most pitches in all of baseball. Now, not as efficiently because he is, let's see, 20, almost 20 innings behind Sandy Alcantara. And like outs are outs and those are more important than pitches. Um, but I, I think if I'm going with like one game, well, if I'm going with one game and I know everybody's healthy, I'm probably still going with Jacob DeGrom or Max Scherzer, but like a series of one games over like a month, I'm probably going Corbin Burns and over a full season, maybe Alcantara. 
I think I just invented like a new way to look at pitching, but that's, that's kind of where I'm at right now. <laughs> it's 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 a it's a fun conversation. It's cool to for me. It's cool to be having like a new list of names. I feel like for many years it was like a very it was Kershaw, it was it was Sale, it was Verlander, it was Scherzer, and then Degrom sort of at the back half of that discussion. That you know, like we're talking, I'm talking about like 2000 the 2010s, right? That was like basically there was like five names in that conversation. So it's fun to be having a conversation with some new names about this. And one thing I'll say about Alcantara, yeah, he doesn't strike as many guys, but like his ground ball rate is the second best. In in the major, so it's like a re- in terms of like keeping the ball in the ballpark, limiting damage. Like it's a real skill that he has. Yes, he doesn't strike out guys like Burns does, but it's like it's a repeatable thing. This is not like oh he's just getting lucky on like bloops. It's like no, like it's a lot of worm burners. So yeah, I'm with you, and I, and I know you don't care, but we're going to briefly talk about the NL Cy Young, uh, not Cy Young, All Star Game starter, just because it's interesting. Um, for 98 percent of baseball history, this is no argument because you have a guy pitching for the hometown team that has an 11 and 0 record with a 162 <laughs> ERA. Like how many years would you be laughed out of town for even suggesting it's not Tony Gonsolin who has an 11 and 0 record uh, in 35 fewer innings? You know, I personally would go with Alcantara, but I think you can at least, and I don't care about pitcher wins, but uh, even I'm not so dead inside. I'm going to laugh at someone who's just the guy's 11 and 0 and he's a Dodger stardom. There's also like the argument that I, I don't totally buy into, but I get that you should start Clayton Kershaw if he makes the team because he's never started an all-star game. It's at Dodger Stadium. And then you get into like a more ephemeral discussion of what's the all-star game supposed <laughs> to be? Are you rewarding the best pitchers? Because Kershaw has not been the best pitcher this year. Or are you putting on the best show because it's an exhibition and should it be Kershaw versus Otani, even though it should probably be Alcantara versus Shane McClanahan? I don't think there's one right answer to that. And I think no matter what happens, you can't say, oh, baseball screwed this one up because like different people will have different answers. And that's totally fine to me, which I think is probably how you feel, too. Yeah, I think it's I mean, the, the Kershaw thing is an interesting point. You know, I, I you know, I think I think one of the years he didn't start was I think it was 2013 at City Field where Matt Harvey started, where like they were like the two like candidates. And it was kind of like, well, it's at City Field. Matt Harvey should start. Like, you know, like it's man, there, there was a time when like Matt Harvey was in that conversation a long time ago. <laughs> and it was like, okay, they're they're hosting, and it was like he was the guy, and it was like exciting. He took the mound, the, the place was electric. I actually, when you think of it from that context, I almost think Kershaw's a better choice because I feel like the crowd would be more I, I don't I don't have my hand on the pulse of Dodgers fans, but I feel like Kershaw starting the game would get a more create a more visceral like reaction and atmosphere than Tony Gonsolin would. Yeah, well, there's definitely a segment of Dodger fans that would agree with you, and there's also a segment of Dodger fans that would be like, "No, wrap him in bubble wrap. Do not let that man move any more muscles. <laughs> let him be available because Walker Buehler's hurt, and like Dodger starting pitching is thin." There's there's not a wrong answer to any of that. I think. We'll take a quick break, and we'll be back on the Ballpark Dimensions podcast with our three better minimum. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline.
We are back on the MLB.com Ballpark Dimensions podcast, Mike Petriello and Matt Myers. We move into our three batter minimum with three pretty interesting topics of the week. And I'm pretty happy with these. I think all of these are fun. Uh, The first one I wanted to talk about, Trey Mancini. And Trey Mancini, you know, one of the most heartwarming stories of the last couple of years where he overcame cancer and came back to be successful. And I think that's like a really important part of his story. And yet sometimes I feel like it overshadows the fact that he's a pretty good hitter. Like we talk about that more than we do the fact that he crushes baseballs. And he has four different 20 or more home run seasons under his belt. And if you were to look at him this year, you would say, well, eight home runs is is okay. Although a 122 OPS plus is pretty good. And there's a reason this is going to be important because as I'll get to in a second, I think he's going to be a pretty popular trade deadline candidate in a couple of weeks. But here's what stood out to me. If you were to look at StatCast, you can come up with an expected home runs number. What that basically means is you take the trajectory of every batted ball and you can compare it to all the wall heights and fences of all the different ballparks and say, how many would that be out in, right? So for example, you've probably seen a short porch home run in Yankee Stadium and it comes out as it would only be a home run here, one out of 30, you know, or a line drive off the Fenway fence and you say, that's actually a home run in a bunch of places, et cetera, et cetera. You do that for every ballpark, you average it out. Mancini, based on the way he has hit the ball, would have 15 expected home runs. He's only got eight. That's a gap of seven. That's the largest in baseball. The next biggest gap between actual and expected is Jesse Winker with four. And you can take this to an extreme. If he had played all of his games in Houston, he would not have eight home runs. He'd have 20 home runs. (laughs) He'd played all of his games in Cincinnati. He would not have eight home runs. He'd have 22 home runs. Now, obviously, there are home games and road games, so these these are hypotheticals. But still... He is one of the guys who's really being crushed by the new fence dimensions in Baltimore. As of this morning, he had five balls that were hit to that area that were not home runs that would have been last year. Two of them were doubles that would have been out in almost every other park. Three of them were outs. And he's also had some bad luck on the road as well. Uh, He doubled off the very top of the Fenway Wall. It's a home run in 29 parks. He also flew out to the deepest part of right field in Kansas City. That would have been out in 20 parks. And I bring it up because it's an interesting number. It's an interesting discrepancy. But also, you know, teams who are potentially looking to trade for him are not just going to look at eight home runs. They're going to look at all of that and say, you know, we get him out of there. We put him in our ballpark. Uh, maybe this guy looks like a, a totally different kind of player. Like, I think that's a really interesting part of his story. If you'd asked me two months ago, I'd have been like, oh, yeah, Trey Mancini is definitely getting traded at the deadline. Like, the, the Orioles have been kind of frisky. Um, they are 40 and 44. They have a better record than the Rangers, the Angels. Like, like they're a half game behind the White Sox. <laughs> Wait, the Angels? I didn't realize that. They have a better record than the team with Mike Trout and Shohei Otani. That's good to know. <laughs> <laughs> they're a half game behind the. They're a half game behind the the, the White Sox. Like, I don't think they're going to make the playoffs because right now, they, I mean, it's 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 settling where it's like, okay, actually, it looks like the AL East teams are going to occupy the three wild card spots, and I think that just like the. The, the Blue Jays and the Red Sox are probably just a cut above the Orioles, and it's going to be. But I do think there's something to be said for like the Orioles having a season where, like, you know what, we're like, this is starting to coalesce a little bit. We're trying to win as many games as we can. Mancini's not going to bring back a lot in a trade for like a half season rental. Why don't we just keep this team together? I could see them bringing back. He's like, he's like the one holdover from the, the this whole rebuild. He's not that old. It's actually you're now at the point where it's actually like, you know what, this guy could be a contributing member of a competitive Orioles team in a couple of years. And given that like the return wouldn't be that great, I'm not sure he's gonna get moved. I just think there would be a lot of teams interested in him, right? I mean, the Mets would make a ton of sense. The Red Sox, the Astros, like there's no shortage of teams here where where he could. And he doesn't make that much money, right? I could I could see it no, for sure. Like my point is, I thought it was gonna be a no brainer, no brainer like two months ago. Now I'm like I'm just not 
certain anymore. And just because like the 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 price for like half season rentals of like guys of that profile has been pretty modest in recent years. So maybe if there are a few teams involved and they're desperate, like yes, he would be uh, a really good fit on the Mets. Although we saw JD Davis, you know, have his uh, his his breakout yesterday <laughs> against the uh, against the Marlins. Saw it in person, but like he'd be a very good fit on the Mets for one. But I'm 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 interested. To, I'm very interested to see because it also like it's also part of this discussion that like you know this Orioles front office is a former Astros front office, which is. Very very like you know, rigid like kind of like very you know, you know arbitrage like how can we get value out of players kind of mindset. So holding to him would be very a very like soft factors like old school baseball kind of move of like hey you know what we actually have like a competitive environment here. This guy's a leader on the team. We want to keep him here because like we want to win as many games as we can this year because we think it's important and set like this like change the culture here a little bit. So I think that there's it's I'm very interested to see how this plays out. He has a 780 OPS. If we split the difference and give him back three of those lost home runs, he would have an 824 OPS. That's a pretty big gap. All right. Our second topic, which I didn't realize I'll write the second, also involved a man named Trey. Uh, Trey Turner is playing better on defense, and he has a guess as to why that is. He thinks he's gaming the advanced metrics, which I found to be a really fascinating topic. So I got to talk about it for a second. You know, he's a great athlete, right? Routinely one of the fastest runners in baseball. Defensive metrics don't usually think that much of him. You know, if you go back to 2020, both outs above average and DRS, defensive run saved, thought he was like somewhat below average. Last year, they thought he was average. This year, they both think he's below average. And he knows this. He talked to Ken Rosenthal about it. And his quote was, outs above average hates me, (laughs) which I appreciated uh, because it's true. But he's been a lot better lately uh, if you split it down by month. So in April, he was a minus four. And in May, he was a minus three. And all of a sudden in June, he was plus four. Like, that's a pretty solid turnaround. And he thinks he knows why. He told Ken Rosenthal, quote, all I had to do was play three feet closer and the algorithm liked me more. And he said that the idea of adjusting his game to improve the metrics is kind of stupid, which I will say I completely agree with him on. You should play to get outs and win the game and not worry about what the metrics say about you. But it was interesting that he said he thinks that the metrics like him better because he's playing closer, which in theory could be true. Um, if you were, you know, changing your opportunities to make them easier or harder, then that would change the way that you're graded. And like, there's there's something to that. So I, I found that fascinating. I'm like, well, I have to look into this. Uh, is it true? Is he gaming the metrics? It is true that he's playing shallower. First two months of the season, he was playing an average of 150 feet deep. In June, it was 147. You know, that's exactly what he said. Move in three feet. So... I wanted to know what that meant. And and here's where I think the case falls apart a little bit. Uh, His chances are not necessarily easier. So the way defensive metrics work, the way StatCast works, based on his opportunities, you you put a grade on it and say, how many of these opportunities would an average fielder make? You know, you have an estimated number. And if he was really messing with the metrics, you know, his his estimated numbers would have changed. It would have gotten easier or harder. They have not. (laughs) In April, 77% was his expected number. And in June, 77% 77% was his expected number. What's happened is he's just making plays. So in April, he converted 71% of his chances, and in May, it was 69% of his chances, and in June, it was 80% of his chances. It's not about how they're being graded. It's just that he is converting the plays. Now, here's the part of the, the mystery I don't have a good answer to. Is he just playing better? Is he on like a defensive hot streak? Is it just like random stupid luck? Or is he actually just a better fielder when he plays closer? Like, was there something about him playing deeper where he was catching bad hops or his arm was less accurate? I, I don't know the answer to that. But I found the whole thing interesting because I like the idea of a player saying, well, I'm going to mess with the metrics. And I feel like there's ways you can do that. I just I don't think that's happening here. I think he's just playing better. 
it's you know it's, it's good to see he's paying attention. I'm always interested when players are paying attention to what like advanced metrics say about them. Um, so that's 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 always catches my eye. We know that you know over the course of a baseball season, you know, all statistics, especially fielding statistics, have huge like fluctuations from like week to week or month to month or like you know two months to two months. So like the fact that over you know you'd see this very the, the the variance isn't sh- isn't shocking to me. It sort of feels like a little bit of just like you know a player will have a a jump in bad bib of a hundred points over the course of a month, and they'll 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 exp- they'll give some you know after-the-fact explanation to explain it away when it was probably mostly just like, you know, he was a little unlucky the month before and a lot luckier this month, and that's, you know, he's back at sort of the point where you kind of expect him to be be with to begin with, and I realize that's not really a satisfying answer, but that's kind of what I think is happening here. <laughs> I think that's fair. I, I agree with you. I think it's cool that he's looking at it. It does matter a little bit because he's going to be a free agent. You know, and if he goes into the winter with terrible advanced defensive metrics, I mean, that's going to affect the kind of contract he gets. So I I do think that in itself is a little bit fascinating. All right. Our third topic. And I had to talk about this because I tweeted it and I got like 150 angry replies from Tiger fans. And I thought, well, that's something worth talking about. Miguel Cabrera, all time legend. Uh, you know, has been kind of fading into the twilight a little bit here the last couple of years. Hasn't had a 20 home run season since 2016, which was stunning to me. But he has what looks like a really good line at age 39. He's hitting 308, you know, 348 on base, 372 slug, uh, you know, without that much power. So it comes out to a 108 OPS plus. But still, like, that's that's great. One of the best hitters I've ever lived, still doing it at 39. And then I dug into it. Here's where things got a little weird. He hasn't homered since May 15th. His last 18 hits have been singles, and he has a 403 batting average on balls in play or BABIP. So if you're not familiar with that, it's batting average without home runs, without strikeouts. It's just balls that fielders potentially have a chance to catch, right? And for a bunch of years, it's been used as a proxy for luck, and to some extent it is, but there are ways to to you know put some skill into that. So like if you have good speed, you can beat out infield hits and raise your BABIP. That's not happening here. He is the 470th of 474 players in sprint speed. He's one of the slowest men in baseball. You can uh, game your BABIP with very good contact. Like Paul Goldschmidt does this all the time. Sprays hard hit line drives everywhere. Well, 46th percentile in a hard hit and 25th percentile in quality of contact. Or you can do it with extremely good luck, which like there is part of this that is good luck. That is indisputable. No one... Even Miggy himself in his peak has a BABIP over 400 for a whole season. So that's kind of where I let it go. And then um, every Tiger fan in the universe has tried to convince me he's doing it on purpose, which I will say there's something to this. Okay, so here's a sample of some of the tweets. Um, It's not luck. He's only trying to hit singles this year, and he can do it as well as anyone in history. Okay. Uh, He's basically given up driving the ball in in the air because his knees are shot and sapped his power. All right. Um, Mo Legged Lou said, Babbitt is a stat that is confounded by literal Hall of Fame level back control. He might be the only righty in the game's history who could pull this off. And uh, one more. Uh, exceptional back control and the acceptance of limitations regarding bat speed and power are the secret to approach this year. And I, I will say I buy into this a little bit. He has the lowest fly ball rate in baseball, which you could argue he knows the power is gone, and so fly balls are not going to leave the park most likely. They'll just be easy flyouts, and you know his knees are shot, so he's not going to hit grounders. So, does Miggy still have like this all-time great back control where he can just flick singles over infielders' head? And will this maintain? I'm I'm willing to buy that 
to some extent. So I'm not out here saying 100% luck. I'm absolutely saying it's partial luck because his bad pip is 403, which is the highest in a season in Tiger's history. But if he could actually do this and like maintain it, that's that's cool. Like that's cool at 39 because he just he's been below average for a number of years now, and now he's above average. Like that's that's cool. I like that. Yeah, I mean, as recently as 2018. Um, he had a 352 batting average on balls in play. 2019, 336. We, and this was already when he was firmly like in his decline. So, and like the power had already started to go. So he's shown some, like this is like not necessarily a new thing of like showing some sort of ability to adapt and, you know, kind of hit them where they ain't, um, so to speak. So I think there's something to this. Um, he's obviously an all time great hitter with insane bat control. But yes, four, 400 is extreme, but like 350, I mean, even. Like, it's, I mean, given the rest of the package, at this point, it's still not a particularly valuable player of a guy with, like, no speed or power um, who plays first base. Like, you know, on 100, let's say he's like, you know, let's say his true talent level is like a generously a 100 OPS plus. Like, okay, like, that's fine. I mean, it's not like the Tigers are really going anywhere, so no big deal. But, like, um, I'll buy it a little bit. It's it's kind of cool to see. Um, you know, and as we, as we record this, he was actually just named um, – to the All Star, the All the Star team, he and Albert Pujols will be like legacy selections for the uh, the All Star team and the uh, for the American League and National League respectively, which I think is pretty cool. I think it's cool. That's a new thing this year. Um, I believe it was part of the new CBA where the commissioner's office has the ability to to name like a living legend, which I think is cool. Uh, I'd be interested to know how they. Dis- I guess Molina's hurt. I was going to say Pujols or Molina, but he's Yachty's hurt, so I guess you could say that. Um, but it's cool. Like they'll get to go and. They won't take a roster spot away from anybody, and they'll have like a chance to, you know, doff their cap and everything. What I'm interested in, I don't know if you actually know the answer to this or not. Is he the Tiger now, or are we still going to get like Michael Fulmer or Tarek Skubal, you know, on the team? I I don't know the answer to that. I have a hunch he's going to be the Tiger now, because um, he might have been anyway. And this sort of just like will make it easier to do the rest of the roster selection, being like, hey, and like no one's going to complain about it. Like it's it's Miguel Cabrera. I mean, at least Cabrera, and also like as we just talked about, is having like a a nice season. The Pujols thing is pretty, I don't know if interesting is the right word, but, like, the Cardinals are fighting for a playoff spot, and he has been, like, I think I know myself, like, he had a nice nice first week, and I was like, oh, Pujols, yeah. like, he'll, he's having a, a decent time with, you know, he's going to be, like, a nice little you know contributor there in a limited role. It has been really bad now for a while. This is a definitely arbitrary endpoints, so I'll, you know, you can, you know, castigate me if you will, but like after those first five games, 40 games, he's played 125 plate appearances. Pujols is hitting 168, 256, um, 262. And like that's a roster spot on a contending team. Like, man, like can they really keep him on the roster all season? They, I mean, they've had injuries. So let me preface there. Like O'Neal's hurt. Bader's hurt. You know, they had they sent down Dijon. Like the, the roster has been in a state of flux. Molina's hurt. Uh, so there's that, but man, they have let him hit against too many right-handed pitchers. That was the whole thing with the Dodgers last year. They only let him face lefties, which he could do, and it hasn't worked out. And it's like, I, I don't know, maybe you have an agreement with him where he's willing to walk away. They're not going to cut him. Like there's just there is no chance they're going to say you're out. But these guys start coming back, and then roster parts start getting a little tight. Yeah, get to your point about righties. He's hitting. He's had 88 plate appearances against righties, which is 30 more than he's had against lefties. Granted, there's more righties than lefties, but still, like, 88 plate appearances against righties, 135, 273, 230 um, this season. That's, 
it's it's an, it could be it could be end up being an awkward situation. Um, so we'll another another one to monitor. But him in the All Star game will be an unmitigated cool moment because he is a living legend who's done all sorts of great like off the field stuff in the community. Um, so with special needs kids, especially like. So it'll be a very cool moment to have him and, and Mickey in the All-Star game. Yes, and when he pinch hits, which I assume he will, he's not going to be a starter, I just I hope it's against a left-handed pitcher. <laughs> Although, I, uh, to your, what? remember, nationally DH, Bryce Harper will win the vote as starter. He's hurt. He's hurt. Shane McClanahan's probably going to start a left-handed pitcher. <laughs> there are so many NL. For, I guess I don't know the rules for this step, but there's so many NL first basemen. Like they'll they'll put Pete Alonso at DH or something. No, probably. I think the thing is William Contreras is the other guy yeah, who's in the vote. I don't know how it's going to play out, but anyway, I we'll see. We'll see. Hopefully, sets up in the starting lineup. You never know. You never know. All right, we'll take a quick break, and we'll be back to end with our guys. We should talk a little bit more about on the MLB.com Ballpark Dimensions podcast. We're back on the Ballpark Dimensions podcast, Mike and Matt. We always like to end with a couple of guys you should talk about more. And I went with, this is going to be a random one. I accept this may be the most random one, but there's good reasons here. Arizona Diamondbacks left-handed reliever Joe Mantiply. And you're thinking, wait, what? Well, there's actually three reasons here. Number one, he might be the early leader in my book for the most, like, are you kidding? Wait, who? All-star. And the all-star rosters are going to come out in a couple days. And he might be on it. And everyone's going to wonder who on earth this man is. And if you think about it, the Diamondbacks don't have great candidates. Like Christian Walker has got a really good OPS plus, but he's hitting 207 and NL first base is loaded. Ketel Marte might make it because Jess Chisholm is hurt, but like five homers and four steals, eh. A starting pitcher like Zach Allen, sure, but there's lots of NL starting pitchers. Well, Joe Mantiply has a 191 ERA and... Will he catch the eye of the player vote with that? Or will he be named by the commissioner's office because they need a dime back? It's possible. So I want to at least talk about him because he's having a really good year. Like the movement on his changeup and his sinker are both above average. And he's had an interesting career path to get to a 191 ERA with the Diamondbacks. This is the second interesting thing about him. The third interesting thing is going to be he holds an MLB record. We'll get to that in a second. He was drafted three times. Mets, Phillies, finally signed with the Tigers as a 27th round pick in 2013. Made it up with them in 2016 and threw two and two-thirds not notable innings. That's right. The second week in a row, I'm going with a Tigers draftee who left and then found success elsewhere, just like John Schreiber. And then he bounced around, right? Claimed by the Yankees in 2017, spent the minor uh, season in AAA for them. He was signed with the Reds the next year, but never threw a pitch because he had Tommy John surgery. So he spent all of 18 and most of 19 rehabbing, where he's traded back to the Yankees and got into one game. That's right. Another guy who could have been a great Yankee reliever. Um, 2020 pandemic season, through two and a third innings with the Diamondbacks, got DFA'd. Anyway, last year he finally gets his first interesting season. 57 games with Arizona as a useful middle reliever. And then this year, in his first 29 games, he allowed one earned run. Now, he had two really poor ones recently, but he's like been a key part of that bullpen. I promised I would tell you he holds an MLB record, and he does. In his very first game of the season, his second batter, he walked Jerks and Profar. He has not walked anybody since. He has walked zero hitters in his last 33 games. That is the most consecutive appearances without a walk by a left-handed pitcher in baseball history. There are a couple of righties ahead of him on the all-time list. That is a mark held by Dennis Eckersley at 41 in a row in 1989 and 1990. He is, let's see, as I'm looking at this briefly, all of the other ones ahead of him 
did it over multiple seasons. So I guess you could say he holds the record for the most consecutive in-season appearances without a walk ever. He holds a cool sort of record. I also, whenever I do research for these things, I look at baseball reference. Here is their idea of a fun fact for him. He's one of very few players whose last name starts with the same four letters as Mickey Mantle's does. The list includes Felix Mantilla, Jeff Manto, and Matt Manti. Now you know those facts. I don't know if he's actually going to make the All-Star game, but I thought he might, and I felt like we needed to at least dig into him a little bit. Now you know something about Joe Mantiply. Our Diamondbacks beat reporter Steve Gilbert um, wrote his weekly newsletter about the All-Star case for Joe Mantiply. It, uh, for Diamondbacks fans, it'll be hitting your inbox today. Um, if you're a Diamondbacks fan listening to this, you should subscribe. All 30 of our beat reporters do newsletters. You should su- subscribe if you're if you're interested or a fan of a team. Um, there's a great quote from Brent Strawman here, who's the Diamondbacks pitching coach who said of Mantiply, I'm really pushing for this guy. Nothing would please me more than to see him get selected to the All-Star game. Trivia question for you, Mike. Do you know who which left-handed pitcher previously held the record um, for most consecutive appearances without a walk? Um, Sean Doolittle? Wow, that is correct. <laughs> I, I saw... Um, they, the Diamondbacks tweeted out some like fancy graphic when he broke it the other day. That's the only reason I know this. <laughs> The only reason I know it is because of reading Steve Gilbert's uh, newsletter. (laughs) (laughs) There you go. All right, Mike. My guy for this week, I'll start you off with a trivia question. Do you know which rookie leads the majors in in home runs by a rookie this year? Is it going to be the guy you're going to talk about? No, the guy I'm going to talk about is second. The the number one guy is obvious. Uh, Julio Rodriguez. Julio Rodriguez leads all rookies with 15 home runs. But second on this list, and i got to tell you, it would have taken me a lot of guesses <laughs> to get to this until until his three-homer game last week or two weeks ago. It's Jack Sawinski of the Pirates. Yes, I'm doing another Pirates guy. <laughs> Jack Sawinski has 14 home runs, second only to Julio Rodriguez amongst rookies. On June 19th, he had a three-homer game against the Giants. The third homer was a walk-off home run. How cool is that? Um, possibly my favorite fact of the baseball season, that in the month of June, the Pirates had three players. Sawinski, Brian Reynolds, and Michael Perez have three homer games. It was the first time in baseball history that a team had a trio of three homer games in the same calendar month, and it was the 2022 Pittsburgh Pirates. Wow. Anyway, back to Sawinski. Really interesting career path. 16th round pick of the Padres in 2016 out of Taft High School in Chicago. Um, he was he was signed for like a, a, a way above you know slot bonus. You know he got five hundred fifty thousand dollars when he signed, which is way above for a 16th round pick. So obviously the Padres saw something in him. Um, he was just 17 years old when he was drafted, so he's still just 23 years old, even though he was drafted you know almost seven uh, six years ago. I'm gonna turn 24 later this month. Um, he had a breakout year in the minors last year, had an 868 OPS um, with two separate organizations, and um, he was traded last year. From the Padres to the Pirates in the Adam Frazier trade. And I realized when doing the research for this episode, this is the third guy I've talked about this year who was once a Padres farmhand. Um, I also talked about Josh Naylor in a previous episode and uh, Ty France. And it's really amazing. Um, you know, the, the, the Mariners get all the credit for being like the team that makes all the crazy trades. But I feel like the Padres trade tree of the last like seven years is like pretty wild of like the players who've come and gone from inside that organization. Um, Sawinski was absolutely raking at at, at, um, at, tri- at double A this year when he was called up, hitting 353, 421, 686. Um, 
There's no question there's a lot of swing and miss in his game. Um, so I'm not exactly sure what the ceiling is. His current overall batting line is 215, 300, 463. So there's there's definitely some pop in the bat, but he's got a 31% strikeout rate. Um, but there's some real power there, as evidenced by the 14th home run. He's also playing a lot of center field, which is an 80, he's got an 87th percentile sprint speed. It's 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 a unique profile of like having that kind of speed and power. Um, I'm not exactly sure what the 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 Pirates have in Jack Sawinski, but the fact that he was second only to Julio Rodriguez among rookies in home runs felt like he deserved a little a little attention. Yeah, the Pirates are still not very good. Um, they got blown out 16 nothing the other night, but they are full of interesting guys for the first time in a while. And when I knew you were doing Jack Swinski, I was like, wait a minute. I thought I saw Jack Swinski's name pop up on some kind of leaderboard I was doing recently. And I looked it up. And it's true. There is an interesting fact here. If you were to look at the most home runs on two strikes this year, Aaron Judge is the most with 13. Byron Buxton has the second most with 10. And then there's a group of like eight guys tied at third. And they're mostly like dudes, you know, Pete Alonzo, Paul Goldschmidt, Kyle Schwarber. Jack Swinski's on that list. He has eight home runs with two strikes, which sort of makes me wonder. We talk about a two-strike approach as being just put the ball in play, and his two-strike approach might be, screw it, I'm going for it. <laughs> and I guess it works for him. It's not easy to do that, but hey, if you're right behind Judge and Buxton, I feel like you're doing something right. I like that one. That was a good one. That'll do it for this week's podcast. Don't miss an episode by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you're enjoying the show or have any suggestions, leave us a rating and a review. Thanks for listening to the Ballpark Dimensions podcast. See you next week. Remember, Mandy and Sarah first, Mike and Matt after that. Thanks for listening.